nations. To dwell above with saints we love. That will be grace and glory. To dwell below with saints we know. Now that's another story. Now I'm certain that on any given day, most of us would have to admit that we didn't quite see eye to eye with someone. Our spouse, our boss, our kids, or our kids with our parents. There's probably someone, somewhere, on most days that you've had some disagreement with. If there were never any disagreements, there would never be any sort of new thoughts, challenges. If there were never any challenge to the status quo, there would never be personal growth, maturity. If there were never any conflict, no mistakes would ever be corrected. No one ever told you you were wrong. We, hate, we give out trophies to everyone, right? If there were never any difference of opinion, no improvements would ever be sought, sought after. In fact, if you and I never disagree, one of us would eventually become unnecessary. <laughs> Think about that. The real trick is to disagree without being disagreeable, right? We introduced that last week, without all the dissension, contention that goes along with it. To differ without creating disunity, easier said than done. What happens when Christians disagree? Well, we probably can't always even agree on that. But we had some ideas last week. The premise of all that we do in the church must be that hymn that we read last week, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. As the psalmist wrote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, not unanimity, not sameness. Don't cut your hair like mine. Don't wear a suit like me. Don't whatever. That's not the point. It's not unanimity, but it's unity within a great diversity of spirit and personality abilities and talents, all for the purpose of the glory of God. I'm not particularly stimulated with conversations of people that only ever agree with me. I mean, I, I thank you for that, but I'm not particularly overstimulated by it. It changes, though. If we can have agreement going into a conversation, if we can have agreement on our faith, that's why to young people I say to young people, be sure and please consider above all else a mutual faith when you share that with someone else. Because you can have a disagreement with one another so long as at the end of the day you know that you agree on one fundamental truth, and that is your love for the Lord. So if we can enter into a conversation in agreement that we love the Lord, we can have some tension, you know, we can have some conversation, we can have some back and forth, but it changes our perspective when we first agree on the things that we love. How then can we disagree on the non-essentials? Last week we said to receive one another first 12 verses i have to remember when i stand before the lord i don't answer for you right and when you stand before the lord uh, you're not even really answering for yourself other than to give the name of the lord jesus christ and, and god isn't going to look back over his shoulder and, you know when i stand before god he's not going to say well what do you think about him right it, we stand before the lord on our own and to realize that God can and, and often does 
work with, bless those with whom I disagree. God can still use that circumstance in ways I never imagined. And so the blessings of God are seldom, seldom dependent upon you and, I dis, uh, you and I agreeing. That's not where God's blessing is found. But it's in learning to love one another. Always dependent upon you and I learning to love one another. Well, to balance out this idea of love and acceptance, because sometimes that gets a little squishy, doesn't it? Paul gives the next great lesson for those times when Christians disagree on these matters of doubtful disputations, and we pick it up with verse 13. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block on occasion to fall in his brother's way. This is edifying one another. So in the first half of the chapter, we want to receive one another. second half of the chapter, we want to edify one another. If Paul had stopped with his first admonition simply to receive one another, we might have been left with a false impression that Christians were just to sort of leave each other alone. Well, whatever you think about it, that's fine. And not express our opinion. It doesn't really matter. And then those who are strong in the faith, they continue to be independently stubborn because they've never been challenged in any way. And those who are weak in the faith remain very weak in the faith and very, very immature in their spiritual understanding. In verses 1 to 12, the emphasis there on the master-servant relationship, that is, employee-employer. We're all under the same rule, working for the same purpose, that's for the glory of God. The idea that all servants in the household employed for the same purpose, each with various responsibilities, but all of us serving the same master, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in love we receive, appreciate one another for the contribution that each one makes in this household of faith. Now these verses, beginning with verse 13 to the end of the chapter, Paul focuses on a brother-to-brother relationship. So the other was was the employee-employer, master-servant, same household, now it's brother-to-brother. Now our personal relationship comes into play. In in love we edify, encourage, build up. I'll give you these two principles, then we'll move on. Verses 1 to 12, we are free to act in our own conscience, before God. In verses 13 to 23, the end of the chapter, we must live in constraint before men. Our conscience before God, that governs our actions, our thoughts, our preferences, but then also our our interaction with one another, constrained by our love for one another. Well, to help us accomplish the task, four principles I'll give you. First of all, you've got to consider your effect on each other. You have to consider your effect on one another. Verse 13, I read 14, and then know that I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ that there's nothing unclean of itself. So you can't tell me that it's wrong to eat a meat, that the, the, one of the references to eat meat that's been offered to idols. Because the idol is nothing. So if the idol is nothing, don't tell me that it's poison the food. But there's still some consideration in this. There's nothing unclean, but to him that esteemeth anything, to be unclean, it's what? It's unclean. So your conscience has told you, I shouldn't eat that. Then don't eat it because I eat it. And to the Lord, one regards a day or another in the first half, but in here he says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably or in love. And what are you doing? You're destroying him. For why? For a personal preference for whom Christ died. And look at it again, verse 13. 
Look at it also in verse 15. What do you see your actions may do to another brother or sister in Christ? You might create a, verse 13, a stumbling block. You might give a reason for their, their fall, right? Their sort of failure in their spiritual life. Verse 15, it goes on to suggest that they might be grieved by the fact that you're sort of stubbornly doing this. And it, might, it says there, you might even destroy him. This is the kind of effect that a strong Christian can have on a weak Christian by judging, expecting, even demanding more of them than their own conscience is prepared to accept. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, we went through that. I, I just bring it back up as sort of an illustration, similar circumstance discussed in the question of something like this. Should a Christian eat meat that had been offered to idols? Should it, so you buy your meat at Acme. Let's say you buy your, uh, your, your T-bone at Acme for $8.99. But I found that I can get a T-bone in what was called the shambles or the alleyway behind the temple. Because their meat had been offered to idols, now they, they, it's going to go to waste, so they sell it for cheap. So I can buy my T-bone steak at hamburger prices. You going to do it? I'm going to do it. But see, you might have a conscience that says, no, I don't want to, any, in any way do I want to have any appearance of supporting the idols. And so I don't do that. Okay. That's fine. I don't demand of you to buy your meat there. And you don't condemn me for not buying your meat, or f because you don't buy it there. So it's that, that interaction. Paul's comment there was that if one was to eat meat, then the conscience of him that says, I'm not going to eat that meat, might be emboldened to do something that they otherwise thought was wrong to do. And you know that if you do something that's not of faith, it's what? See, now, you, now you've brought yourself under sin, because you said in your heart, I shouldn't do that. Somebody else is doing it, so I'm, okay, well, I'll do it. And, and your conscience is bothered the whole time you're involved. So then the stronger position, which recognizes the truth, that idols doesn't corrupt meat, cause the weaker brother to go against their conscience. The point Paul is trying to make in both cases, little had to do with the meat. Little has to do with that personal preference. But as an illustration, knowledge alone, your knowledge that the idol, which is nothing, cannot contaminate the food, your knowledge can only ever destroy a person. It is by love that you build up the other person. So knowledge and love being balanced. You know, love in any relationship without knowledge quickly disintegrates. This is why Paul told husbands, your husband, so I'll give this to you as a, I should have written down the reference, I can't remember the reference, but Paul told husbands to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. Now why would he do that? Because if she has to tell you, right, then you, you missed it already, right? But you, you don't mind the list, but she doesn't want to give you the list. She just wants you to pick up on it. And she knows that you love her because you've understood her. That's the challenge. Dwell with them in love, but according to knowledge. Interesting, if you bring that into the relationship of the church, our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, 
If it's only ever love, it gets squishy, and I don't really know what you believe, but if it's only ever knowledge, it gets pretty heavy-handed, and I don't know that you love one another. So there has to be always that balance of knowledge expressed in love. It gives deference. It seeks to meet the needs of the other person. That's what builds relationships. That's what builds the church. So without a balance of knowledge, love disintegrates, deteriorates, divides the church. Something that really is no big deal. It may be a big deal to someone else. And you have to remember, again, we're not talking about doctrinal differences. But you have to remember, to that person it was a big deal. You have to respect that. You have to understand that. And you have to enter into that with them. Because if you only ever dismiss it, because what's the big deal? Then you're not showing deference, not showing love. The point is this, don't make your decision based on how you feel in that circumstance about personal preference, but in love consider how that choice may affect someone else. And that works on both sides of the equation. So secondly, in order to build up our fellowship, you also have to uh, consider your acceptance of one another, your acceptance of one another. And that goes on in verse 16. So don't let your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat, and it's not drink, but these three. Righteousness, peace, and joy. And that in the Holy Spirit. For, he, for in these things serves Christ. If, the, if in these things of righteousness, peace, and joy you serve the Lord, then this is acceptable and approved of men. The question might boil down to something like this. If it's acceptable with God, then who are you to condemn me? I, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Remember the Pharisees? They had a way of majoring on the minors. Matthew 23, other scriptures can illustrate. Remember when they brought, it happened in this circumstance, it happened to be a lady caught in sin? It was obvious. And they wanted her condemned. And they wanted to know what Jesus would do. Remember when he stooped down? And then he looks up and he says, You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he goes on to say that some of you are choking on a gnat while swallowing a camel. I have witnessed churches whose membership split over matters of spiritual insignificant gnat-sized things and yet refuse to deal with that what we call the, you know, the elephant in the room. What people bring up, by the way, if you ever have a conversation with someone around the gospel, you know, trying to have some spiritual conversation, you're going to get this. So from your unsaved or young, immature Christian, you'll get this. Well, what do you think about, and they'll throw something in. By the way, what you think about is really not significant, but what are they trying to do? They're trying to get you distracted. Master, what do you say? Jesus, what do you think? Jesus always came back to the truth. Right? Always get back to the truth. Get back to the fundamental truth, the thing that you know is true. We have to first determine our priorities in the conversation. Things that are of importance, and stick with that. You see them there in verse 17. Righteousness, that's your personal character. Just deal with personal character. Beyond that, you're going to be on dangerous ground. Don't say because, well, you know this, that. No, what's the, what's the personal character of, of this circumstance. Then seek for peace. That's 
peaceable spirit. You're not being a troublemaker in this. You're not trying to stir up problems. You're not trying to be belligerent, as I was talking about earlier. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy is a gladness of heart. By the way, we know that without joy in your heart, you cannot serve the Lord. Psalm 100 tells us that in verse 2. Joy in your heart is required if you're going to serve the Lord. Those three things, major on those. The personal character, right? Righteousness. And then also consider peace. Is this making for peace or is it just stirring up trouble unnecessarily? And then also is it bringing joy, gladness to the heart? Each of us must seek to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in knowledge, Colossians 1. And we speak not as pleasing men, that's personal preference, but pleasing God, and it's God who tries our heart, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus never sought to please people in hope of glorifying God. Jesus only ever sought to glorify God in hope that others may join him and be glorified together in this thing. The kingdom of God, literally his authority, it's not measured, maintained, or somehow enhanced by you offering your opinion on the matter. That's not, God's authority is settled. God's position is one of strength. You and me adding another rule to the matter isn't going to help. Because the kingdom of God is not in those things, meat, drink, rules, matters of doubtful disputations. So long as Christians seek to yield to the Spirit, verse 17, that's what he talks about, those three things, yielded to the Holy Spirit. So long as we continue to yield to the Holy Spirit, there will be unity in our church. Remember, you and I always agreeing on any given preference, that's not the issue. But you and I always racing to find that level ground nearest to the cross of our Lord. By the way, when you're gathered around the cross, a lot of the conversations that we would otherwise have sound a little silly, don't they? And may I just add to that, sometimes that's why we seem silly to the world. Some of the conversations we're having, some of the things that we might say, they seem out of touch. Let's stay focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stay focused on the cross where our Savior suffered and died. Because if we get off from that, our message becomes quickly irrelevant. Well, John chapter 8, that illustration of uh, Jesus with the lady and saying to those who were innocent, you cast the first stone. Is it possible that somebody who would come to our church would find someone standing on this side of the door with a stone in their hand, ready to condemn rather than ready to embrace. Remember, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were what? Sinners. Christ died for us. You didn't have to change anything. Now, I think since then things have changed. You didn't have to improve anything, but I hope that in your spiritual walk with the Lord, things have improved. But you came to Christ as you are, just as I am, we used to sing so much, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Well, when people come into contact with the church, they ought to be met with open arms. Remember, God commendeth his love, and yet while we were sinners. 
Well, what about our approach to others, our approach to one another? Verse 19 goes on, Let us therefore follow after, approach, go after the things which make for what? Peace. We saw that in verse 17. Things wherewith one may, what? There's the word, edify. What's that mean? Build up one another. For meat, what is that? Remember, that's an illustration of the personal preference. For meat, don't destroy the church, the work of God. It's evil for that man to eat with offense. The person who says in his heart, I shouldn't do it. You've encouraged him to do it or not do it based upon your opinion. You, 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 you've taken this person away from where he needs to be in the Lord. So far as it appears, the strong believer needs to grow in love in order to maintain a balance in his understanding of what is true. And it appears the weak believer, so the newer believer, the weak believer, the one who's not strong, as strong in their faith, they need to grow in their understanding in order to maintain a balance of their love. So we've each got an assignment. You've been saved for a long time. You feel like you're strong in the Lord. Don't lose your compassion for the unsaved. Don't forget who you were before the Lord saved you. Don't forget about the circumstance of life and what you would be apart from the grace of God. Don't forget that. Because you'll, you'll lose your love for the unsaved person who's struggling. And, and you can't understand why they're still caught up in that question or that thing. Or, and, and those who are new in the faith, you want to come along and understand more about what God has done for you. right? You can't just stay weak in that. Our approach to evangelism always has to have love and knowledge linked together. Look, if you need more structure in your life, you feel like, oh, I, I got to get back to church and I got to get things back in order. Uh, I might encourage you to join the military. I might encourage you to maybe join a monastery, but don't join the church. The church isn't going to be that for you. The church will be a little messy. It'll be a little awkward sometimes. There'll be some give and take at times. Be times we have to understand one another in ways we didn't realize. I didn't know you'd been through that circumstance. I didn't know that would hit you that way. I didn't know you understood it or took it, as I've said. If you need a place of forgiveness and love, acceptance, you want to hear about the gospel, I hope that forever you will find a place here at Stony Bank Community Church. In order to reach people where they are, stay focused on what is necessary, I'll ask you this one question. Does my message apply universally? Or is it only circumstantial? That is, like I'm targeting a cultural issue. Does my message apply universally? Could I take this truth and go to the mission field somewhere where their culture is totally different and I could still share this message? Or is my message targeting something cultural, something that's changing? Something that's out there in the world that I'm just angry about. That's what we have to be careful of. Here's an example of how your approach may be skewed by rules. And it's something that I think it's silly enough that you can all understand. If you had a little child who's learning to walk. And they're a little unstable on their feet. And they fall at times. You would say of that child they are learning to walk. If, on the other hand, you had someone, maybe my age or otherwise, an adult, and they're a little unstable on their feet, and they fall sometimes, 
Now the conversation is totally different, isn't it? Here's what you have to be careful of. You have to be careful that you don't make a rule that says everybody who's unstable on their feet has to walk with a walker or a cane. Now this little child, now see the absurdity of it. I know we're not going to apply this, but you see the absurdity. This little child never learns to walk on their own because we made a rule. And the unintended consequence is the one never grows up. Do you see the point about making rules of cultural issues? Just be careful you don't create rules that have unintended consequences. Our approach has to be one of kindness, one of compassion. It'll help protect and encourage them where they are, teaching them how to stand on their own without dependence upon a rule, but dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If a brother falls, if someone falls into sin, we don't write a rule and say, here, use this. We reach out a hand and we say, let me help. That's the difference of the church. We can't be about writing another rule. When I was at a college, they loved to write rules. I was, probably why I didn't last too awful long, oh, five years, that's pretty good. But I, I did not like writing rules. Because now you have to find a way to enforce the rule. And there's nothing worse than having a rule that you can't enforce. But you feel better about yourself because you made a rule. That cannot be the church. It cannot be the church. We have to reach out to one another in the mess of life, the hurts, the problems, the pains. Well, with this kind of approach, our differences help to edify, build up, serve one another. Finally, in these matters of doubtful disputations, personal preference, fellowship, can be edified or built up as we seek to make allowances for one another. Do you have faith, verse 22? That is faith in this matter, this questionable thing. Do you have faith in this thing? Notice the rule of thumb. What does he say? Have it to yourself before God. Don't bring it up to council meeting. Saying, Pastor, we need to make a rule. Now you're all going to be afraid to bring it up. No, I don't mean it that way. But you've got, you've got a conviction about something. It's sort of a personal, private matter of your own. And you say, okay. Then you have it to yourself before God. And you're happy. That you haven't condemned yourself in this thing which you've allowed. That's great. It's terrific. God bless you. And he that doubteth is damned then if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. Now you see that phrase that you know fits into all of these matters. On matters of personal opinion, if your participation or not is in full assurance before God, then God bless you. Only notice that rule of thumb. Keep it to yourself. Don't try to make a rule for everybody else to live by. Don't hang your guilt. Don't put your hang-up on everybody else. I must not force my personal convictions on you. You cannot borrow from my conscience. But rather we allow for each other to come to their own standards of conviction on matters of personal preference. Anything less is going to stifle the very thing for which we desire, that is the edification or building up of the body of Christ. Most people think that more rules makes us stronger, right? You've seen that. More rules, we're stronger because we've got these standards. Well, God bless you all. That's terrific. And I'm glad you have some standards of life and 
personal convictions. That but you bring that into the church, that will only ever divide us. It will not unite us as a church. We're not looking for public conformity before the law, but private conviction before the Lord. An illustration of a relationship, again, I use marriages. They don't fall apart because of what couples do in public. Marriages, relationships fall apart because of what people do and say in private. So you're a good Christian this morning because you're following the rules. You're here in public, right? And your relationship with the Lord isn't going to be built up just because you're here in public before the Lord. And I'm glad you're here and all of that sort of thing. But what tears down are those private matters. What you do when you're outside, when you're in private, when no one else is looking before the Lord. Because if you don't do it in faith, then for you it's 